This is episode seven of the Brick and Data podcast, a podcast dedicated to retail news, analytics, and tech. Coming up, IoT, coming to a retailer near you. Back to the Future is finally here. Nordstrom is ruling by committee. And more in this episode of Brick and Data. Hello, everyone. Today is Friday, September 23rd, and welcome to another episode of the Brick and Data podcast. My name is Todd Harris, and I'm joined by Jose Chan, as always. Good morning to you, Jose. Hey, good morning, Todd. So we've got some fun stuff to talk about today, and uh, the first thing first will be uh, in the world of IoT, which to everyone here that doesn't know what IoT is, but you probably do know in a way, probably because you have something in your house that is that, is Internet of Things. So the little devices that um, we may have on our wall regulating our temperature in our house or um, maybe something in another room that communicates wirelessly with something else. So a lot of these devices in our homes and, of course, since this podcast is all about retail, a lot of them are appearing in retailers. So there's a purpose for these, right, Jose? There's yeah. a reason why retailers are getting excited about IoT and we've heard it talked about a lot. Some things are picking up more than others. But there seem to be some um, some examples, some types of of these IoT devices that are uh, that are certainly finding their way uh, in in the popularity contest. Absolutely, Todd. And you know what's happening here? It's interesting because this is a trend, right? It's kind of like uh, we were talking earlier. Uh, everyone says big data, and Internet of Things is exactly like this, right? Everyone says Internet of Things, and it seems like this amorphous. Uh, unreachable concept, but if you think about it, the Internet of Things, as you were saying, Todd, is pretty much part of the fabric of our everyday lives. Right. Uh, something as simple as the Amazon Dash button, right, is one example of this. Do you use those? Have you used that yet? Uh, I have not. Uh, yeah, I haven't uh, either, but I feel like I should. There's a couple There's a couple of those that I feel like I could use, and it would make a lot of sense. And let's just quickly review what that Dash button is, because I know a lot of people have heard about it, but it's a very simple way that um, you can re- you can essentially reorder or order uh, basic staple items, right? Like paper towels, for example, just clicking a button, it goes right into your Amazon account, it places the order, and off it goes. Done, right? Yep. Exactly. You could you could order things like um, anything like Tide, and usually it's best used with things with dry goods that are just replacement items, right? Like right. Uh, detergent. Or you could use it with uh, paper towels. You could use it with uh, razors and such. They have dash buttons for, as I mentioned, Tide, Bounty, Gillette, Huggies. Yep. Um, and it's interesting. And, and that's one component. The other component, and bringing it back to the Internet of Things, we had mentioned a few episodes back um, the low bots, right? The bots at the yes. low stores that would be tested. And this is also a component of the Internet of Things. So. It's not as, let's say, uh, basic. Out- yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> because it, it, it's pretty much a, it, it's all encompassing, which is yeah. what's fascinating about this, which is why we're actually talking about this this morning. It, it really is, seems like it's, um, you know, very much pie in the sky, if you will, but it isn't. It, again, it's very much a fabric. Uh, part of the our the fabric of our daily lives. Yeah, and I feel like it's been around a hell of a lot longer than we all realize. You know, in a way, I guess in part of the retail universe that we're not all exposed to things in the back end of of retail, meaning 
um, things like uh, stocking shelves. So having sensors around the shelves to know when um, when things are getting low, when stock in a certain item is getting low, or uh, inventory sensors in the back in a warehouse to know when um, there's either not room for something or, again, inventory is getting low on something. And having that toss out a, a note to the to the ERP system or whatever whatever system might be in place to kind of fulfill, to refill. And um, so I, I feel like some of those things in some varying degree have been around for a while, but it's it's extending to the kind of the quote unquote, you know, the, the front office or front, you know, front facing part of retailers where we as consumers now can see these things and actually uh, make some use out of them for our advantage. Exactly. And, and I think, Todd, to, to your point, look, part of the reason that they're much more prevalent today than uh, than they had been in the past, and yes, indeed, they, it has been around for a while, yeah. is because of the, let's say, ability that we have with our smartphones, right? We have smartphones that are ubiquitous. We have Wi-Fi, which is readily available, at least in this country, right? And it's it's pretty much facilitates all of these things, uh, facilitate this Internet of Things concept to take hold uh, much more readily. Yeah, I mean, I'd be curious, you know, taking away all the pizzazz out of all this stuff to see what, uh, how this is helping retailers with their revenues. You know, how, how is this helping them perform? Um, I don't think we have any numbers on that this week, but maybe this is something we could look at to report back on some of these, um, some of the successes. So what, what, which, which of these things, so whether it's the smart mirrors or the beaconing or the cameras and things like that that you hear about, which of these things is really impacting them? Mm-hmm. You know, which is which of these things is beyond just the cool factor, but is helping them um, with profits and revenues and kind of that quarterly report that we get from these guys. So maybe it's worth maybe it's worth for a future episode to dig back and see see if they attribute any of their earnings or any of their any of their successes every quarter or even just an end of year report um, from some of the major retailers to see if they attribute to any of this stuff, mm-hmm. you know. Sure, it makes sense. I mean, look, we're in the brave new world of retail right now, where we're seeing things that, uh, at least in our in, in our ta- context of our time, that yeah. we haven't seen before, which have been enabled by technology. And to your point, it'll be interesting to see how how this actually works out on a go forward basis. What sticks and what doesn't stick? Yeah, exactly. And 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 sort of speaking of of. Uh, potentially worthless technology um we've got we've got nike getting crazy with their uh, with their shoes here they've talked about this self-lacing shoe for the past i don't even know how long maybe 10 years it seems like every anniversary of back to the future um where we saw marty mcfly um you know a five-year 10-year 15-year of it coming out we see marty mcfly with his self-lacing shoes which are really ugly in the movie but um it seems like Na- nike has has accelerated their their labs, you know, to, uh, this is not quite IOT. It's not really the IOT thing, but still this is kind of cool because they're doing something pretty interesting here with this self-lacing shoe. I was thinking immediately, cause I have a couple kids. One of my kids took a little longer to tie his shoes than the other one did. And I was thinking, you know what, this would have been great. As expensive as this probably is, who knows, but they've got this shoe. Now you just press a plus button on your shoe and it looks like a normal sneaker and it looks like normal laces. There's nothing weird looking about the shoe, but Nike has their self-lacing shoe. It would have been, would have been great for him to be able to just press that, but he's got to learn how to tie his own shoes, right? <laughs> um, yeah. So the deal is, is that they're, debu- they're uh, debuting their, their long-awaited, quote-unquote, hyper-adapt 1.0 self-lacing shoe in U.S. stores. 
on Cyber Monday. So that's November 28th this year. And all the stories are starting to bubble up now in general about the holiday season, expected, you know, expected gains and shopping revenues and, and, you know, who's going to be selling what on those days, who's going to do well. And Nike comes around here now with this, um, with this interesting tidbit that they're going to have for select customers, those that are exclusively members of the Nike Plus loyalty program, which I am not. Um, I don't know if you are, Jose, but <laughs> I'm not. Not. now I'm actually thinking about it. Um, but just to even see it on that day, and but I could imagine it getting a little crazy in some of their flagship stores in San Fran and New York. Um, but they need to have a uh, an appointment first. So it's not like you're going to line up outside the store to go and try on one of these shoes, these self-lacing shoes. Um, but the bottom line here, the reason why I think it's interesting for this uh, for this podcast today, for this episode, is that they're, they're setting focus. They're doing something different on Cyber Monday instead of just doing some sale on their website or, you know, something interesting and unique on their website for e-commerce. They're actually setting focus to their stores. So on a day that normally is reserved for on- online transactions and shopping. So that, that shows you that they see the value for sure and getting people into their stores and they're using this, um, you know, this hyper adept 1.0 self-lacing shoe as, as essentially the bait, it seems, right? Sure. No, no, you're right. And look, as you think about this, I think what they're doing is, and I, I like the concept that they're not, it, it's about a new product. It's kind of uh, taking right. a page out of Apple, right? Where you're Absolutely. unveiling, yeah. except rather than doing a, a B2B move, you're doing a B2C move. Uh, because that's what they are, a consumer-driven mm-hmm. company. Uh, and they're showing that they have thought leadership. It's unclear whether or not this is going to take hold or not. But I think what they're trying to really uh, demonstrate, which is what's made them a great company for so many years, is that they have the R&D capabilities of creating something fantastic. And this, if you contrast it to what's going on, uh, this is kind of to show that they're as innovative as they ever have been uh, when compared to their largest competitor, which is Under Armour, which is the the up-and-coming uh, company that actually is a challenge to, to Nike. Yeah, they're very interesting, I got to say. They um, they have, and I'm, I hope they have something maybe, maybe at NRF this year, but maybe they won't, but they have some really interesting stuff in their stores now. Speaking of Internet of Things and technology, I mean, they've been doing this for a while now where they you can walk up to a essentially a kiosk and measure your, you know, how high you can jump and, you know, measure the pressure you can, you can place in the floor and whatever, all these different things to kind of, you know, measure your physical capabilities against someone else. And it's, it's really interesting that they're doing this stuff. Cause I think, yeah, like you said, Nike is, is head to head with, with Under Armour right now. Mm-hmm. And honestly, Under Armour has got the edge right now from what I can see as far as the the promotions they have in store, the technology they have in store, and the kind of gadgetry they're, you know, they're offering. Yes, and you're absolutely right because Under Armour, uh, if you read a lot of articles about them, they're, they're essentially about that. They're about tech. They're about infusing tech into what they do. They have the apps, the right, apps. Mm-hmm. that they have. And Nike, you know, t- to your earlier point, by, by doing this, Nike still shows and it tries to appeal to, let's say, the uh, customer that may have left them or that they may share with Under Armour to come back to them, right? So 
This shoe uh, is pretty much de was developed by a team led by uh, Tinker Hatfield, right? And he's an American designer of different Nike, Nike athletic shoes, right? So he's done uh, the Air Jordan. Tinker, you said his name's first name is Tinker. Yep. Uh, okay. His full name's Tinker Haven Hatfield Jr. All right, that's yep. solid. All right, great. And he, he's done many of the Air Jordans, and he's also designed uh, the world's first cross training shoes. So he's so, he's a le he's a legend in essence. He is a legend. It seems like you say Air Jordan, then that's game over at that point. Yeah, Air Jordan, <laughs> Air Max. <laughs> so it, it's pretty interesting. It, it's um. I've not been to the Nike campus, but it seems uh, like an incredible place from people that I've spoken to that have been there. Uh, the campus has so much history going back to its founding, and it, it, yeah. it has different buildings named after their different ambassadors and athletes. Hmm. Yeah, I can't imagine. It, it seems, I don't know, I was just thinking with, with, with Nike, and so Nike's got a relationship, it seems like, with Apple, right? So if you if you think about these these guys these these fitness um, fitness retailers uh, having relationships with technology companies and Nike seems to be more in bed with Apple than than Under Armour is because um, if you look at the recent uh, Apple's recent um, announcement uh, when they had their the reveal of the iPhone Seven and of course the Apple Watch they have a version of the Apple Watch that is specific to Nike. So it's the Nike Run version, the Nike Fit version. I can't remember what it's called. <laughs> um, but it's, it's an actually designed a specific version of the watch for um, uh, for Nike, and it's got their their logo on it and stuff, and of course has all their fitness fitness connectivity and, and all that on it. So they've got, you know, in this case, they may be a little bit behind Under Armour in terms of the actual innovation and what they're doing, but they've got that special advantage of happy, having uh, this relationship with Apple. Um, so that can that can change the game, even when it comes to just shoe sales in a matter of months. You know, um, so I'm just curious to know. I don't know if I don't, I don't know if Under Armour has any type of relationship like that with a technology company. I don't believe they do, but it might be something to check into. Yes, uh, I, I I agree. I don't think that they do, but I think that's only because of where they're located on the coast. Uh, mm -hmm. Under Armour is in in Baltimore. That doesn't mean that they can't work in the valley. They they probably do, but there's nothing. Let's say if you look at the timing of these companies, Apple and uh, Nike on the West Coast, just their age, right? Uh, but sheer sheer fact that they've been around longer there's probably a higher likelihood that they would collaborate right? right they came of age together if you will oh absolutely absolutely i mean i guess if you look at you know under armor has the the map my run app which i think the map my run app existed before like on its own before and i think under armor either purchased it or um or they did some some type of a of a partnership but i don't remember i think map my run was an individual app before Under Armour um, uh, integrated with it. So I'm looking at it right now on my phone and of course you can buy Under Armour gear right from it sure. and, and all that. So it's very similar to the Nike Plus and, 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 uh, and their apps. They always want to make it so you can, you know, when you're, when you're using the app, you can quickly buy, you can quickly buy something. That's the biggest, you know, the path to purchase and that, that conversion is the biggest thing sure. that, they, that they want, right? 
Exactly, exactly. And then just another point, I, I mentioned um, mm-hmm. Tinker, but I did not mention Tiffany Beers, right? And I, and I was remiss in this. But Tiffany Beers uh, also worked on the shoe. She's uh, the senior innovator. Hmm. So together, they created the shoe. And apparently, she started her career uh, working for the Rubbermaid company. Hmm. Uh, and then essentially went to work with Tinker. And so she... It, it it's pretty neat, right? Because it, it's yeah. kind of like, uh, you know, I, I never think of, um, let's say sneakers, like, okay, full disclosure, yes, I do wear Nike. I don't own the stock, but <laughs> <laughs> I've followed them for years. Yeah. And uh, I, I see this as an extension of different things that they do, right? So they have the Nike ID. I think we talked about this before. We could customize your sneakers. Right. This is the next level. And I think they're always trying to come up with new things and test and iterate and see see what happens, which is kind of what their culture is about, uh, is what it seems like from the outside, at least. Yeah, for sure. It, it, it does seem to be that way. And that's how they're going to that's how they're going to pick back up the pace. You know, if, if they're lagging at all behind Under Armour or anyone else, that's how they're going to how they're going to succeed. So we'll have to we'll have to see. Um, I'm really curious to see what this shoe looks like, though, and not even what it looks like, but how it feels and how it works. And um, maybe we'll have to see if they reveal any more about it uh, to see if it's actually viable or maybe they're only making like a thousand of them or something right i can't imagine it's i can't imagine a it's going to be cheap and b that it you know that it's cheap to make yeah well you know what i'm gonna sign up for the loyalty program (laughs) (laughs) maybe they can send us a test version exactly (laughs) (laughs) and i'm gonna try to see find out as much as i can because i'm very intrigued (laughs) Oh boy, yeah, for sure. I kind, I do, I do kind of want to see it. I'm actually more interested in that than I am even looking at the new, uh, the new iPhone or any new phone technology at the moment. But I'm sure that'll change over the next few months. But we will see um, which stores actually do carry that. So I wonder if it's going to be um, San Fran in New York City for sure. But I wonder where else. I wonder where else they'll have it. I'm hoping they have something in Boston that'd be interesting to go in there and look. Yeah. Mm. Well, join the loyalty program. I will. <laughs> <laughs> I will do that. All right, switch gears. Now we're gonna we're gonna move over to uh, chatting about Nordstrom here. And Nordstrom has has done something very uh, different, I, I would think, in terms of. So we're kind of moving away from technology here, talking a little bit about what's going on in the in the upper crust here of Nordstrom. Um, they seem to be ruling by committee now. Um, it seems that there's been another management shift in um, over at Nordstrom, and this is just typical stuff. Maybe not what they did, but this is typical stuff, right, at a large retailer to just keep shuffling the deck to see which maybe what takes or what, what results in, in in better performance or what results in a better, in a, in a better you know, looking forward plan. And it looks like what, what Nordstrom's doing here is they're taking... Um, co-presidents Eric Nordstrom and Blake Nordstrom and adjusted their responsibilities and also added in a third, I don't want to say third wheel, but third, um, Ken Warzel, the EVP of strategy and development. He's been moved to president of Nordstrom.com. So it seems like he's got ownership over, he's got ownership specifically over the e-commerce, digital and mobile. So, um, and that apparently the Nordstrom e-commerce brand gets about 16% of sales 
um, from e-commerce and a total company internet sales of 21%. So that's good. So he's got, so they've got Ken only on that. And then they have, uh, then they have Eric and Blake. So Eric will be in charge of the stores, apparently. So the 121 Nordstrom stores, the um, trunk club, um, Nordstrom.com, which I thought we just said that Ken is over that, but it seems like Eric is also in charge of that. Um, plus marketing, supply chain, and customer care. So operationally logistics stuff there. Um, and Blake will be in charge of Nordstrom Rack. So that, uh, that part of the business. Um, and covers some other operational stuff, including human resources. So Nordstrom Rack is a growing part of their business for sure. So they want to make sure they have one person on that. So looks like they're doing a kind of a distributed management here. So the, the three headed beast in a way. Um, yes. What and, do you think of that, Jose? I mean, what's your, what's your, what's your gut? You, you're an industry guy. You, you've been in the retail world for years. I haven't. And I, I'm staring at you now to kind of get your vibe on this here to, kind of, you know, enlighten us on what you think about this type of management style when you've seen so many retailers in the past either do really well or not do well. How do you think this is going to do considering well, today's environment, you know? Well, it's a really interesting question, Todd, right? Uh, it's, I think to answer that, we need to think a little bit about the context, right? Uh, the context is Nordstrom is originally started as a family-owned uh, retailer, the Nordstrom family. And so as they've grown and have essentially gone out to the capital markets uh, years ago uh, to open themselves up for growth, I think that you have a culture of a family that's always worked together. And their mantra has seemed to work up until this point. So I would say that they're very unique. Uh, what works for them is probably not going to work for other public companies uh, just because of the culture. And this is one of the few actually retailers, major retailers in this country yeah. that has a family that is still involved in the management and is actively involved and has been making pretty good decisions over a long time horizon, right? So this, although it may sound a little different, if you will, mm -hmm. than what other retailers are doing, could work for them. If it's worked for them in the past, right, where there were co-presidents, then in light of the retail environment uh, that, that, that we see, it may be uh, a model that works for them. Will it work for everyone else? Probably not, right? Because we usually see in almost any company that we could look at when you have just two co-presidents, it's always a battle between who finishes off and somebody always ends up leaving <laughs> usually right and and but they've got a looks like they've got a a triad of of you know of management um here and and that's three throats to choke and yes. three people to three people to own own a you know to, to own a really critical time for the business right so they've got so many it, it, it was it was getting confusing there when i was going through talking about this okay so you know ken owns this part of this and it looks like there's an overlap between what ken owns and what eric owns and then you know blake has a has the you know the the off price part of the business and you know and then we've got this other guy pete actually we've got pete wait who is pete 
there is Pete. Pete Nordstrom. Um, Pete. Okay, so Pete will continue to support all of uh, Nordstrom's merchandising functions. This is, by the way, on Forbes. I'm reading some of this off of Forbes.com, the article, which we'll link. Um, and, and he's a he's involved in marketing support of the Nordstrom brand. So I don't know. You know what? I guess I'm one of those, kind of like, um, uh, kind of like uh, Walter Loeb, who wrote this article here. I'm I'm kind of sort of with him on this, just in general. And I can see Jose. I see your opinion and and the the angle you're taking on this. Um, as far as retailers being family owned and being able to exist that way. Um, I just wonder though, with the complexities now of um, the complexities of uh, the overlap between e-commerce and having, you know, they've got Nordstrom Rack, they've got the the brand to maintain, they've got mobile efforts, they've got, you know, uh, potential Internet of Things stuff to adopt and how do they adopt that and how do they make sure that they're all three or four of them is um, are, are aligned with the same with the same goals and mentalities, Poss- you know, possibly they could be, and and that will be great. But I do, I do have some doubts in general because that ruling by committee has always come off to me as has been as has always come off to me as a wishy washy sort of potentially negative thing. But that could put, like you said, could be totally different in this well, case. And, like like I said, I mean, it, it's worked for them. Would it work right. for others? No. I mean, look, yeah. th- there are many cases generally in let's say companies not just retail but just companies that were family owned right and it's usually the the case where over the years uh, even if the uh, company is majority controlled by a family they falter right and they're eventually acquired not the case here uh, they, they, I think they've been successful with this another example uh, within retail would be the Ferragamo uh, company right Salvatore Ferragamo the shoemaker and um, um, handbag leather goods maker if you will they've been under a few generations of, of, of the same family since Salvatore Ferragamo founded the company in the 40s and that's one of, one of the few those are the few uh, two companies that actually have survived uh, intact uh, because they actually don't let everyone um, join the company. Just because you, your last name is Ferragamo, for example, what they do is they have a vetting process. In order to join, you need to work outside first in a company, become successful, and then there's a lot of criteria <laughs> for you to join the company. So there aren't that many family members that are let in yeah. uh, just because of their name, and they have to prove themselves. So that's another model that uh, is not the nurture models necessarily, uh, but um, the key is as long as you have people that could work together that are united by the same goal with the same incentives and yep. the results are in the numbers essentially, at least in retail, uh, and the culture which has been intact, then it works. But again, these are anomalies. Agreed. I agree. I agree. And I'm sure it will work just fine for them. Uh, but, you know, hey, the... Uh, quarterly uh, the the quarterly earnings calls tell all so we will see yes they've been having a tough time but look this is uh not um look as they say in finance short-term results are not indicative of (laughs) long-term results (laughs) (laughs) or long-term intentions or goals here exactly yeah yeah, i get you some things take a while yes totally totally get it so we have a, a a new segment um, a, this segment will be maybe every week, maybe not, depending on how strong our opinion is. This new segment is called Our Humble Opinion, meaning that it's maybe not so humble, but 
it's our opinion. <laughs> so, so uh, Jose, this week is you um, making the hard decisions. Yes. Go ahead, man. Thanks, Todd. So this ties back into what we just talked about, right? The, the Nordstrom uh, family has has three has a triad essentially uh, running the company, and this works. And I guess. In their case, that was their hard decision. But I think if you think of any C-suite or CEO or president, every day uh, she or he is faced with hard decisions. And what do we mean? Uh, these guys made a hard decision and they said, look, we're going to reorganize and this is what we're going to do. And people may uh, agree with us or not. And we just, Todd and I just demonstrated how we could agree or could disagree, right? And if you look at why these decisions are tough to make, let's just look at what's going on in our industry. Retail is undergoing seismic changes, right? So we have sluggish retail sales with few bright spots. We had a tough Q1 overall as an industry in this country. There is store traffic that has diminished vis-a-vis -vis prior years. So what we're seeing is people will come in uh, to buy, but we know 75% have already done their research uh, through some mobile channel, right? Digital channel, if you will. Then we've also seen what we see is instability in the luxury sector. The luxury sector, which essentially uh, weathered the storm of August 2008 and had growth all the way through the recent past, is not doing as well as it had been, right? And again, few bright spots there. So it's a tough environment for everyone, whether you're luxury or not all across the spectrum. And then we see this uh, with through many through the forces that are shaping our environment. And what are, what are the some of the major trends? Again, this is not an exhaustive list, but just to kind of give you the context, um, the omni-channel. The omni-channel is still the holy grail. Um, and what we look to do here with the omni-channel in our definition is we look to give our end consumers a seamless experience. That's it, right? That's what we're looking to do. Why? Because then this creates uh, the connectivity with them that will hopefully influence positive revenues going north with uh, the bottom line going north as well, right? And along with this, we, we're talking about experiential retail. Uh, these are big things. These are things that are occurring. And as retailers, we're taking varying degrees of, let's say, uh, efforts that are addressing this. Uh, some more successful than others, but nevertheless, this is the reality. We have availability of new sales channels. We've seen, as of November of last year, mobile take over in terms of its growth relative to other digital channels, right? Uh, we have... Um, as I mentioned, the omni-channel, uh, it becomes harder for us as retailers. Uh, demographics are a big issue, right? How do we balance the millennials with Gen Xers and the baby boomers all in one store? Uh, and how do we make sure that we keep our existing co customers and not, um, let's say, forget about our new customers that are vital to growing our business? These are things that are top of mind for many CEOs and C-suite executives. So, the point here is a lot of stuff, right? But as astute retailers, we can't lose our way. And so the key to this is 
Why do we need to make hard decisions? Well, we need a roadmap that helps us prioritize strategically how we do business in this new retail environment, which emphasizes this new customer paradigm uh, that we're facing within the Omnichannel. And it sounds easy, and I'm granted not running a multi-billion dollar retailer, but at the same time, having spoken to at various junctures over the last few weeks and months to various CEOs and presidents of multi-billion dollar companies, uh, this is very clear to me, right? That that roadmap needs to be very clear and we need to bring in, uh, make, make hard decisions, um, store closures. Know it's an issue because we have 10-year leases and then what, what's going to happen? Well, this is where we get our board uh, on <laughs> literally on track with us. Um, we have to outsource some services while bringing others in-house. And we have to be smart about this, right? Um, and it's not, these aren't easy choices, but we have to make these decisions. And we have to have whatever we are, whoever we are as a retailer, have a differentiated experience that makes our individual companies different from others. This is the only way that we're gonna survive in retail today. Amazon has come to brick and mortar. So my question to everyone out there, all our listeners, is as astute retailers that we are, how are we going to respond and make sure that our retail companies actually will survive in the future? And that's the show, everybody. Thanks for listening. That is episode seven. Questions, comments, send it to us at brickdatacast at gmail.com. You can find us at brickdatacast.com. And you can also find us on iTunes, Android Play, you can Google Play, excuse me. You can also find us on Stitcher, among others. So until next time, thanks for listening and take care.